Podcast, deconstructing foiling, flow, and the learning process with your host, Eric Antonsen. What's up, folks? Thank you for tuning in to the Progression Project Podcast. Man, it feels good to be back in the water. I just had a shit run of COVID. I hate COVID. Uh, Got it from my daughter. She got it from her volleyball team. Uh, Had two epic wing days. Probably the best wing session I had ever had. Had a shocker in the afternoon. Long slog in. Super tired. Didn't feel right. I could just tell I just didn't feel right. And the next morning I woke up, I'm walking down the stairs and I'm like, this feels like I just got the vax. I go, oh no. Went and took a test. It was positive. Uh, Dr. Buddy had hooked me up with ivermectin. And so I got on that right away. And the first day hit me like a train and super gnarly headache, ridiculously tired. Um, and uh, started to get a sore throat, slight cough. Ivermectin within 36 hours, all the symptoms were gone except for the fatigue. And I couldn't shake that. It took me a little over a week to really want to get back in the water. And wouldn't you know, it coincided with the best run of surf we have had on the East Coast in the last fucking five months. Um, So that was an ultimate bummer. I sat here watching people fly around out back and get barreled and... I just didn't have the energy. I ended up just going shortboarding. The, the best day of the swell, I was in the water. I was on a shortboard. I didn't have the cardio back yet to foil. But I feel like that's come back now. I'm at like day 10, 11. Um, and that is a long way to say that this podcast was supposed to come out about a week and a half ago. And I just couldn't put it together to get it done. So I did watch a lot of Netflix. And you got to the point where you're just tired of watching shows. Just couldn't do it anymore. Um, so fuck COVID. I never cuss on the podcast, but I feel pretty, pretty strong about this one. And, uh, it feels great to be back. Um, absolutely insane. One little anecdote. Well, I won't say that one. Anyways, we're back. Let's talk foiling. Um, today's guest on the podcast is one of my all time favorite guests. One of the people that I, you know, doing a podcast has some really cool benefits. And one of them is you get to speak with your heroes. And I grew up watching Tom Carroll surf. And the fact that every once in a while, I get to catch up with him for an hour and a half uh, and pick his brain, one of the most brilliant brains in surfing, uh, is such an honor. And I am incredibly just stoked to be able to do that and then to share that with, with you guys. Ahead of this podcast, I read Tom's book. I hadn't done that before the first show. And if you have not read Tom's book, I highly recommend it. It is a, a beautiful journey through his surfing life and some of the hardships that he's dealt with and the bounce back from that, which is the most inspirational um, thing about Tom. And, and w- when you understand his journey, you can appreciate where he is now even more. And so it's uh, a lot of foiling in this show, but then a lot of kind of just life journey, like how to navigate um, as watermen the, the, the world that, that we live in. So uh, I hope you guys enjoyed as much as I enjoyed it. And, and thank you as always for coming on, Tom. Before we dive in, 
something that I think is is really interesting. You know, we're doing the project right now with Unifoil. And I have said for a long time that I think foiling is a game of millimeters and quarter degree shims now. And that was just showcased in such a powerful way to me. So the way that Cliffy does molds, and I'll give you guys a little bit of behind the scenes on how this project goes. The way that Cliffy does molds is he has his own shop in South Africa. And he has a CNC machine and cuts molds out of a mid-density particle board, okay? And the foils coming out of that are very close to what they'll be when they come out from the um, really expensive aluminum molds that'll be the production molds. And so we're working on two sizes right now. This is all going to come out here very soon, so I can talk about it. A, a 170 and a 140. And both are done. Like, I'm so in love with both foils. And at the beginning, we made two of each. And I've been testing them. I won't mention who else has been testing them, but some other people have been, been testing them. And absolutely love the foils. Absolutely love them. Um, uh, no one really wants to give them back. Once they ride them, they're, they don't want to let it go because they're so stoked on it, which makes me really excited. Um, and so we decided to make some more and send them around for a few other riders to test. And the feedback started diverging from what I was feeling and what some other folks have been feeling. And it really kind of started to get under my skin. I was like, well, is this some sort of bias that I have, some sort of subconscious need to believe that the, the foil is, is this good? But we had third-party data from other riders as well saying that it was that good. And then we had some you know, feedback coming from other riders saying that it wasn't that good and we should keep working on it. And I mean, I lost sleep for a few nights. And, and then I started thinking like, well, are the foils exactly the same? And so I had a couple foils sent to me where the feedback had been different. And at first look, they're identical. I mean, they look identical. Um, but I bought a, and, and I've had this really incredible pair of brake calipers so I can take, you know, hundredth of a millimeter measurements off of things. And I decided to do a really deep dive into the exact, so I, I basically created a map of the foil and took measurements, um, at all places. And, and I should say that as soon as I got them, I put them in the water and they didn't feel the same. I mean, it was higher stall speed less of the turning feel that I like, less um, of the front foot through turns. Um, it was different, but it was almost imperceptible to the naked eye. And so doing the caliper test and this map that I had done, we found that two things had changed. The max thickness across the cord had changed. It had dropped by about 8 to 10%. Uh, and we're not talking about a, a big max thickness, you know, like I won't get into the details, but, but it's not a very thick foil. And what was more surprising was that the place of max thickness across the cord, so as a percentage of the cord, had moved back by about, I don't know, 15%. So you had a thinner foil with a max thickness farther back. So in talking to Cliffy, what we figured out is that the molds that he is using make the first foil. And now we've gone back and we've compared what I'm riding to the CAD files and it's uh, within, you know, a percent or two in every place along the whole foil. But in making three, four, five foils, 
the structural integrity of the mold had failed somewhat because he puts it under so much pressure for the molding and then it's heated. And it had kind of squished the foil. And the way in which it squished it was was making it a little bit thinner and then and then moving the wide the thick point back on the foil. And the difference is 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 massive in the feel. And so I, I slept a lot easier after knowing that what had happened we could account for in data and the feel difference. So we know that the molds coming out from production are going to be spot on. I mean, they're, you know, ridiculously expensive aluminum molds. There's going to be zero change from foil to foil. And we know that the foils that I was riding and the other one made it look like we could get two accurate foils out of the mold. And then you've had a fall off in quality. Uh, but what was really interesting was that something that seemed so inconsequential when you would look at it made such a big difference in feel. And it's only reasserted what I believe about foiling and that this is a game of um, millimeters and quarter degree shims. And so I thought you guys might enjoy kind of that process um, a little behind the scenes on what we're doing in the, in the, um, uh, production of the foil in the testing prototyping phase and the first two are now done and I'm just over the moon excited to be able to share that the the timeline now looks like we get the first molds from China uh, those are cut now I believe and so we should have the first protos from there be one round of protos from China to make sure that everything maps and feels how we want it to and then they go into production so I believe it is end of the year or Q1 next year, like December, January is what I'm being told right now. And that's conservative. So yeah, I can't, I cannot wait to feel them um, out of the real molds and everything's supposed to be better. Every foil thus far has been better from prototype to uh, real aluminum molds. Just everything's more accurate and, and that's going to be really exciting. So uh, all right, guys, um, let's just dive into the show today. It's a great one with Tom. I hope you enjoy it. Please hit me with questions, comments, feedback. If you have not yet checked out the forum, go and do that. We now have 250 users. It's very active, generally about, I don't know, five new posts, 10 new posts a day with lots of conversation happening. And a lot of folks that you are following are there posting. You've got, uh, Kane is always chiming in, you know, really good conversation right now going on about setup and tail shimming, some debate there happening, some discussion about volume and prone boards, um, downwind intro stuff. So enjoy and contribute. And all right, guys, let's dive into the show. Take care. Tom, thank you for coming on the podcast. How are you? Ah, yeah. Good to, great to be here. Fantastic. Thanks for having me on. Well, I appreciate you coming on. It's always an honor to get to, to chat for a bit. And I'm always so appreciative of the notes that you're sending and how positive you are in the sport. I think that you add a lot of soul and positivity to the world. So I appreciate Thank that. You. Thank you. On behalf Thank of everybody, I hear that a lot. Right. Thank you very much. I know that you just got. I know that you just got to spend time in Hood River with a bunch of my buddies. How was Hood River? Yeah. Wow, that was a real eye opener for me. And uh, Dave Kalama had been 
you know, talking to me about it for some years now. And I kind of got the idea, like, I'm going to be doing some downwinding. I don't really have access to downwinding other than doing maybe a paddle on prone or because of my sup skills are good, but I don't have the, I had a bit of a run in with, you know, supping um, myself into a frenzy, learning how to foil. And, and I did the, I squashed the L, the disc between the L5S1. And so I was very wary, even though I knew Dave, Dave's going to use the downwinds. It's just incredible bumps, you know, you go forever. And I'd always been interested in watching what Dave was doing there. And, and so when it, when the chance to join the Freedom Fall board crew, you know, Chris Sayer and, you know, and you got Brian and the crew and, you know, yeah, Brady. Well, you know, it was just really extraordinary chance, you know, to, Sort of, I'd never really met everyone. I don't, it's all been online, <laughs> you know, it's all been electronic sort of connections. And then when I got up there and saw the faces and met the person, people, and Chris particularly, and, and got involved, it was such a, it was a full on, it was a very non stop. And just to see what wind sports were all about, <laughs> I really, I've seen a lot of wind sport here in, in Sydney, watched it and, try to do windsurfing back in the 80s and then try to do kiting in the late 90s and got almost died. <laughs> and, and I kind of thought, oh, well, I threw my hands in the air at that one, thought I'm not, no, don't think I'll do the wind thing. Even though I love sailing, I love Hobie Cats and things like that. But I basically, you know, got there and I was, I was just amazed at how the wind sports, you know, focus, you know, and the whole you know, culture there was so vibrant. But, you know, being there with that crew made it real special. And, yeah, so we had, you know, some incredible foilers there. And, yeah, so it was just a fantastic get-together. And then and I must admit I was pretty toasted in the end. All I did have to use a jet ski to sort of tone me in a couple of the big, you know, more more solid days. And I did have a go on the prone board, which I got up on a couple of times. But, just the whole feeling and the vibe of being in the gorge was really special on top of that, you know. How do you yeah, find yeah. downwind versus well, as a I, lifelong surfer? You know, like it's a different feeling. It's one that I've grown highly addicted to. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can see how it's moving for you. It's pretty cool watching you kind of like tag in and just really get, get a sense of it. But I, I've done quite a bit of downwind paddling, like on prone, you know, stock, class for you know i've done a team with my brother in the molokai we've done that twice together my, my brother nick mm-hmm. and i in 2001 and 2016 and i've done the you know, as a team with brad gall who actually won the, the unlimited Cross channel, yeah, molokai race twice and I, we went on sup in 2015 and I, I mean, I always loved that wind swell feel and getting on and doing our doing our training and learning how to sort of tap into the bumps. And I think that came like second nature because I learned how to surf in a lot of wind swells. A lot of wind swell, sort of like the East Coast gets a lot of wind swells, you know, over the uh, there in the US and mm-hmm. local wind generated swells, very short period. And that's how I sort of grew up in that kind of those sort of conditions, learning how to surf. So I kind of I naturally felt my way into downwind. And it's a lovely 
what I've, what I get now is if, if I can feel myself sitting, getting drawn into it the way you are with the foil, I, it's just getting time now and space to actually pull it off. Doing a few shifts in my life in the moment, so which create requiring a fair amount of concentration and effort and, and sort of stepping aside a little bit. But I'd say, you know, in the next couple of years, I really want to put in the time and with the gear and, and really tap into it because it's there's something really special. And Dave Kalama, I mean, never forget, well, Dave's been a big influence on me from the get-go with both stand-up paddleboarding and then in turn foiling. And so then on top of that, he goes, downwind's the thing. You know? He's like, once you click in, like it's next level, but once you click in, you know, it, 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 that's where it's at. You know, I used to go, really? You know, like I was going, I'm into doing these big old calves. I'm into towing into a couple of big old long lines that are sort of kind of particularly in a couple of places where we do it here in Sydney where I do it with PV. You know, we kicked off quite a bit off a wave called we call the gathering. And that gathers together the swell over a couple of different reefs and creates kind of long, I mean, cat saddles and wedges. And you can see James Casey gets out there, beds just right out in front of his house. <clears throat> and, and we tow around and rip in. It's a super easy access for us. And we just have a blast. <clears throat> At this point, there's not so many crew doing it. And, and I thought, oh, I'm, I can sort of, I could do that. But the downwind, hmm, is it? You know, anyway, I've been watching, you know, Dave was sort of really, you know, trying to look at this is the, this, that's where it's at. Every time I do the, be a part of Dave's Kalama camps there in Fiji, it'd be really sort of cluing me in and not be watching how dedicated he was to it and focused and, you know, building on it. And I wondered, I do understand that there's something very alluring for the mind, the human mind, when we have to concentrate at all these different levels to stay with something, which has these collective kind of little patterns in it, in the chaos. Does that make sense? So you're looking, yeah, you're sensing all these different levels and you have to really put all your effort in. Concentrated, but a relaxed, once you get to relaxed, concentrated effort, it sort of sets you up for the flow state. And, you know, how blissful a flow state is. It's like a, once we're sensing that, it's like a, it's, we just want to be there forever. <laughs> it's just like, yep. it's where we want to be. <laughs> so, and when the ocean's doing that and you're in there, you're just actually a little bit above it, not so much in it, and you're actually sensing it all. And I've had a couple of downwinders where, yeah, that really felt special, but I could never, I can't, still can't go. Haven't got further than I think like six minutes up, so it's pretty short. <laughs> when you think about what James Casey's done, oh, okay. and what the guys do, you know, with you know Dave and the crew, uh, it's amazing. You know, Kalama, I've gotten to know him over the last probably seven, eight years now, mm. and. I was always at the beginning felt a little skeptical on some of the directions that he was heading and didn't listen to some advice of his. And then it's always proven <laughs> to be true. And now I have the exact opposite mm. take. If he suggests something or says I should be into right. something, I just do it immediately and then figure right. out what he's figured out because I feel like he is so much signal that, oh, yeah. you know, if he's onto it, 
Mm. it's probably i'm gonna be on to it as well and yeah. so at this point i just listen dave says something i'm like all right i'm in yeah oh you gotta be it's just he's just putting he puts everything in and i just that's i love dave he's sort of yeah i always have and he's always got that i've always had a really nice connection on that level like where he you know we both loved the ocean and we had a bit of a go he introduced me to jaws uh, and all that sort of stuff, and and just his ability to actually sort of sense the ocean, and when you get close to someone who can sense the ocean the way he does, it's sort of there's something that connection thing that really spent. And he's coming from and able to communicate from that place very clearly, which is tricky. I must admit, it's not not easy done, particularly if, yeah the way Dave does. Yeah, he's able to articulate his feelings mm. at a very high level about the ocean and about life in general. I always find that yeah. I'll call him for some advice on foiling or to talk through a setup or to see if he's felt something and then leave with some new profound understanding of life or some like nugget I have to yeah. think about for like the next five days. <laughs> yeah, just to broaden this perspective just yep. a bit. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I always look forward to my interactions with Dave. Yeah. You mentioned mm. the states that we get into there and I'm having a hard time with the term flow right now. I think it's becoming way too overused. I mean, Adam Newman, the guy who did WeWork's new company, he called it flow. I feel like we need to find a new term for that. So that aside, I do think it's one of the, I don't know, quintessential highest states you can achieve. How do you compare that mm. to meditation? I know that you spend a lot of time in your life chasing both of those is there mm. any similarity there to you for sure it's just connection it really is simply connected connecting to all senses also to everything coming into it's kind of like your intuitions sort of pulling you in does that make sense it's kind of intuitively pulling being pulled into the undercurrent of life like it's sort of in the body and the mind, the whole system tends to just sit in place. The first time I ever had that state, I didn't know what it was called either, by the way, when I was 13, when I first experienced surfing, I was surfing a wave called, uh, by the name of Crescent Head. It's a, it was a long right point break, kind of soft wave, but I found myself down at the end of this break and it was coming late evening. I was there with a whole bunch of other surfers who we're going to surf for the Newport Surf Lifesaving Club in, in the what they called back then the Malibu board display. <laughs> <laughs> this is 1974, by the way. So it's a while back, and it, it's, it was about halfway up to where we needed to get to, up the coast, and the guy that was driving this funny old bus thing said, oh, well, let's all go surf Crescent Head tonight, you know. Like, okay. Didn't know what he was talking about. But I heard of Crescent Head, I heard of Crescent Head but... Seen a few photographs, but, it, well, whatever. I didn't really sort of put it all together at that point. I was mucking around with my mates at the back of the bus, you know, carrying on. And then <clears throat> we got to this point break, just peeling down the point. And I'd never seen anything quite like it. I jumped out, went, and I got this wave, went all the way down to the end break where there was no one. It seemed to be another section. And I ended up surfing this wave by myself. And I didn't have a leg rope. <laughs> so and it was quite a swim in but i found myself getting into a space where i couldn't fall off i tried and i was just in sync with everything it was such a nice wave and that just 
the way the conditions were and everything fell in. So I was just able to go up and down wherever I wanted to go on the way. It felt like it just felt that way for me. And I remember when I, <clears throat> when, you know, this idea of flow state came in, that, ah, I just distinct such a clear memory of feeling like I couldn't put a foot wrong. And, and that happened a few times in my lifetime surfing because I put a lot into it. You've got to put a lot into something to, go, to gain that sort of connection, I think. That's my thinking. Does that make sense to you, Eric? Like you've got to put a lot of work into something. You can't, you know, the flow state, if you're a concert pianist who needs to be in sync completely and utterly and then to be f- moving from note to note at a rapid rate trying to do, you know, well, playing Chopin or something like that, we, and to bring in the feel to the audience, we need a lot of practice has to go down, a lot of hours. Of course, back then I was a kid putting so many hours in the ocean and building a very, very deep relationship with water and my surfboard, particularly that surfboard. I remember that surfboard was really a good board. Like I loved it. And so, you know, you've got this love, you've got this connection with the board, the connection with the ocean is very tight and very clear. And so when that's happening at, I think, you know, you sort of, you're almost sort of seeing into the future about what's happening, just slightly, not, does that make sense to you? Like you can almost sense what's happening just a little bit before it's all happening. So you're all, I don't know, does that make sense to you, Eric? It does. It does. There's, when you were explaining Mm. that, there's a Greek word. We were talking about dogs right before we started the show. And we've always mm. named our dogs after Greek gods and for what we wanted the dog to embody. Mm. But there's a concept there as well. It was not a Greek god called Aristia, which was mm. godlike abilities in a moment of need. Mm. And it's a term that I always loved. I actually wanted to name yeah. my daughter Aristia. My wife was like, no, they, she, they can't do that. But, <laughs> Play that one on her. Yeah, but because I just thought it was a cool word too. It's a great one. But that's almost what it sounds like you're explaining there is just, and not mm. in a hubris way. It's like you're endowed mm. with it. No, um, you can't even it, think. It, it, you can't think. If you started thinking, you'd be gone. <laughs> yeah. Do you differentiate <laughs> between the macro state that you were talking about there, like over a session, and then the micro moments, like the disappearing so one of the things that i call it like in a pipe barrel are those two different feelings for you well you know the your hyper awareness uh, we're talking you, you mentioned meditation prior prior to a little start of the conversation here where meditative states when we're allowing our system to sort of do its thing and we're sort of stepping off to the side of it and you can reach what the frequency of gamma in the mind where there's the brain waves running really high like they're just so what the sensation of taking on a really intense pipe barrel and all of a sudden just sort of you know you're feeling you've got no choice but just to feel everything through so all your senses in the body are just really fired up and the adrenaline's flying through it to you and then you get this big old wide barrel and you're in there it, there's moments there where you become hyper aware so you're super hyper-aware of what's going on in and around you, and it seems like it slows down. 
just for that moment. I think those sort of those little moments, those moments do pop back. You know, all of that kind of imprinted mm-hmm. into the system as a memory, and more so because it's quite a strong emotional has a strong um, emotive quality after it too. Like, so you go, whoa, what was that? Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was intense. And you come out of it, even if you don't come out of the barrel, sometimes it can be you get through a section of the barrel, whatever. Pipe, pipeline has that effect on us. And say, just like we've seen Chopu mm-hmm. in the WSL and so on. So I'm sure some of the servers had that effect. But that's, that's yeah, that's the super high frequency. That's So that's gamma. And that's reached when we've gone all the way to that relaxed and then hyper-concentrated. So does that make sense to you? It does, absolutely. Like, yeah. The way that I kind of have started to think about that, mm. and this kind of goes to a broader conversation a little bit, but I think that as children, I think that our view of reality gets narrowed as we get older. We build routines. We actually process Mm -hmm. less of what's in front of us. We become somewhat removed. There's just too much information. And Mm -hmm. then the aperture in those moments, you don't have a routine. You haven't built Mm -hmm. a system to handle that Mm -hmm. barrel or whatever that situation is, that intensity. So you have to open the aperture 100% Mm -hmm. or close to it to experience and get through that situation. And so I think that it's actually the most connected that we can be to our surroundings because the filter becomes removed because the filter has to be removed. And Mm. so, I mean, I think that you get that in, you know, something at the intensity of a pipe barrel, which I've never experienced closest. I probably have come is cloud break, but it wasn't huge, but Mm. I'm not the, I'm not the world's greatest surfer. And but in downwinding or foiling, you get a piece of that at a lower consequence mm. for a longer duration. So the aperture has to be open because there's so much information. I think it's an information mm. thing. I think that mm. the less predictable the environment, the larger the aperture needs to be. Does that make any sense? And Yeah, for sure. And you're flying along on this bump. And it, if you make the consequences like some of the crew come on, on, on the podcast, I've forgotten who they were now, but talking about consequences, you know, making the consequences quite high, like, like you know, you've got no, <laughs> you're just sort of flying out way offshore and you don't have a paddle, you got to actually sort of paddle all the way back or you sort of, you, 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 you bounce yourself way out to the sideways facing sort of sea, short sea, so you can downwind it along the coastline. And so you make, or you go from point to point, the land, and the land, you know, you have to make landfall, say, 10 kilometres away. So you sort of, stakes are higher, so you have to concentrate harder, and not that you're in fear, but you have to make sure that you're really observant of the bumps. So to make sure that you're really tuned in on what the bumps are doing and that means the spread of your concentration over the surface of the ocean and has these you know has the pattern like we're talking about the pattern because we're just basically walking around a kind of a a bunch of behavioral patterns Mm -hmm. so we're sort of standing up on this and we're going to tap into those bumps and actually feel the foil the body's going to work through it and then sort of tap into what those little bumps are. and I love the way James Casey does his 
you know, his his live runs and he sort of goes through what he's talking, you know, talking about around the bump and so on. And for anyone who's keen on it, get on the James stuff because it's a he does it so well. And I and he explains it so well, but really that sensation of having to do several layers of concentration. So scanning the water kind of close by because you're sometimes slowing down to a fair rate and you got to sort of come off the back of a bump and you've got to be sensing how the broader, wider field is sort of behaving so you can tap into the pattern of the next set coming through or you might be able to tap onto a little wave train that's coming kind of where you've tapped into how the angles of the wave trains are behaving as they change along the course. Yeah, I think. And if you, you're up the stakes, you've got to concentrate a little bit harder or just maintain that concentration. I think that's so absorbing. We have to be in the moment. We can't not be in the moment. We start to sort of start daydreaming out there and the consequences, <laughs> you, could be, you could be paddling, you'd be stuck out there. And you don't really start, well, particularly in this ocean out off this coast. And I know you guys <laughs> have your little, you know, you've got those sharks that fly and those ones that jump out, spin it, the sharks that jump up and spin around. What are those sharks? The spinner sharks, yeah. Spinner sharks, yeah. Yeah, not the kind of place you want to be. Yeah, another stake is put in there, yeah. So, but, yeah, the high level the high level of brain activity around that, you know, they'd be connect, connecting, just connecting all sources. So you can maintain and stay with it. And I think, you know, that's where that sort of sense of being completely at one with what's going on, that's the key. That's the, that's that's what we're sort of searching for, really, at some level, like we'll get that sense of broader sense of being in the moment. It's a very, it becomes a very life, I mean, it supports life at all levels. So you... <laughs> and you're so in the moment. It's like a very special thing. People are trying to find that in so many different ways in their life. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Infinite so, diversity there. Yeah. I, I do think that at some level we're mm. all chasing, not all, I think it's too general, but a lot mm. of us are chasing that feeling. And then some people I feel just become completely disconnected. That feeling exists and then they live the rest of their lives mm. without really ever thinking about it again. Mm. You know? yeah, yeah, you got the wings you got the wing suitors and then you got the guys the guys that just want to jump off a you know do the wing suiting thing. That's pretty that's intense, isn't it? So it's a similar thing kind of going for that. But there's if you don't really you've never been introduced to anything that anything of the sort and you're mature well well maybe not even mature but just your age in your body and your body's never really done anything to be pushed. You know, the, phys- yeah. the physical body hasn't been able to express itself. And, yeah, it would be tricky <laughs> to find it, yeah. I just went through and read your book with your brother. And oh, Yes. There were a yeah. lot of things that resonated with beautiful book. Mm. Anyone out there who has not read it should mm. pick it up and read it. And one of the things that's kind of apropos to what we're talking about right now is early on in the book, you were talking about school and how once you found surfing 
and the consequence of surfing before school and the highs and lows and moments of consequence, it was so much harder for you to sit in class and have that be important. And then also close to that, you talked about relating to people who were also going through the same journeys at a much better level. And that's something I've found throughout my life. All of my best friends are around the things that I love to do or the vast majority of them. Has that changed oh, yeah. for your life? Do you feel still feel the same way or have you found ways to integrate into normal society at a better level? For lack of a better way to um, life's kind of, kind of pulled me in some direction. Like I've started to teaching the meditation now. It's like a whole nother, whole nother lot life is taking off in a way. So it's kind of interesting. And I teach all kinds of people and it's really nice to see how the human condition moves. It's like, and how people are in that way. That's quite different. I also have to really get out of the way and allow it to sort of come through me rather than, and, you know, I guess in that sense, I guess being in, flow (laughs) to express it you know i can't be in the way so we are literally out of the way but i think as far as yeah that i definitely feel similar i mean i still have all my friends are have that kind of that zest for you know life to go adventure and yeah there's definitely that big part of me in there that's never i think that's ever gonna go but and a lot of my buddies are yeah, still love pushing it a bit. I kind of, you know, I have gone to a point in my life where I've had to make a few sort of adjustments, like not too hard, but so I don't sort of, because I can tend to push myself a bit too hard, so I have to sort of pull away from, so I can physically pull off the next. So I'm aiming to be pretty good, hopefully, when I'm in the, you know, the 80s, you know, so I can sort of do things. So I'm trying to think that down the track, you know. So, but all, a lot of my buddies take good care of themselves, like to, you know, like foil surf, do various forms of activity and mix it right up. And so I'm pretty much, yeah. And I remember those days back then when really clearly a couple of times when I'd get to school and I'd, wow, this is different. You know, like I just had this experience this morning with surf was I was getting driven into the sandbar head first, you know, <laughs> and then I'm like, and everyone, then this whole school thing kind of starts to mm, sort of fade in the background. But no, today I'm still fully engaged in the ocean, still love, I still get to, I actually still surf with quite a few of the friends that I used to surf with early in the morning before school. <laughs> so How incredible is that? Isn't that cool? That's we get to do that. Yeah. Mm. That's amazing. How have you approached aging? And this is something I've spoken with Dave Kalama about on the podcast. Mm. And it's something that I'm starting to think about a little bit in that Mm. Dave, the way that he explained it was there was a moment when he had to, and I'm sorry if I bastardize this a little bit, but stop thinking about progression at the same level and being the best and trying to keep up and start thinking more about enjoying the experience. And he said it was hard at the beginning, but then now it's very rewarding. And, and he's, was, was there a conscious moment 
for you in the same vein? I mean, you're someone who has literally been the best in the world at surfing at one point. Was there a moment when the competitive side had to be let go a little bit? And was it a conscious moment? Yeah, there was some conscious moments. Like, I think it sort of started when I, just as I was actually decided to retire from competition, it started to happen then. And that's a while back now in the 90s. So, you know, 30 years ago, a little bit later, around 30 years ago. And that time I decided that, and it was funny, I was just conditioned by exterior sort of old, old ideas, you know, and I could have probably gone for another 10 years, I'd say another decade at least. When I look at how Kelly went, and it has gone, it's still going, I should say. I, but I sort of what, somewhat conditioned by some ideas in my head that, oh, well, I was going to have a family when I was 30 and it just started to happen. <laughs> well, I, I'll have a family when I'm 30 and I'll just set myself up out of, out of competition, you know. And it started to happen that I sort of thought, I sort of programmed myself around that, which was probably when I look back on it, a little bit, well, I just didn't offer myself a chance to sort of rejoin. But I think as soon as I started to pull away from full-time competition, which I wasn't, to be honest, I'm not a huge competitive, crazy competitor, like a few of the competitors I surfed against, a few of my rivals and so on, and even as I go on through and watch what goes on, I'm not, I have this edge to me which will come out, but it's not, 24-7. So so when I had children, that sort of shifted me. Kind of I went into that zone. Wanted sort of I just wasn't 24-7 all about me, wanted to be a world champion or top five or aim for this or aim for that. I ended up sort of just being on tour just to surf in a certain event, which I liked to surf in. And that that's just relating to that stuff of com- com- competition. And then after a little while, I found that my surfing actually improved and I started working in different ways with my surfing. And I think I improved through my 30s. And that that period, particularly in the early 40s, I think, too, is also a very strong time for our relationship with the ocean, the sport, or not, the whole expression, excuse me, the whole expression of, you know, working, refining your act and evolving in your ability to read the ocean and read the waves and pick and choose and make good decisions and make better decisions. And I think in that time, I think it actually, you can see how Kelly Slater moved with it. He's 50. So I think there's a lot to be said for that. If you keep your body strong and I mean, I didn't particularly take great care of it at a period, during a period. In fact, I bombarded it with toxic chemicals. And I still sort of, thankfully, was able to come out the other side and actually clean up and be, you know, offer it more life and evolve further. But, of course, how could you have even foreseen stand-up paddleboarding and foiling for me? So... I could never have seen it coming back then. But all those offered 
a sort of sort of an evolutionary sort of step stepping stone for me and and the ability to sort of grow as a person in the ocean and and i think maturity you know well even just more time you spend with the ocean water the better (laughs) really as far as i'm concerned and look (laughs) what it's got to offer us it it offers us incredibly credible you know benefits as a human like from health and longevity's point of view that's for sure yeah i mean i think about the amount of time that i get to spend in the ocean which is amazing i've kind of just for the last 20 years tried to build my life around spending time with my family and spending time in the ocean and i really just only make decisions that allow that and once i realized that once i was honest with myself about that life became yeah. a lot easier yeah. i think I, I hid it from myself for a long time i tried to pretend to everyone around me that i was really <laughs> doing the adult thing when all i really wanted to do was hang out with my wife and kids and just surf all the time and <laughs> Now I just tell everyone, <laughs> yeah. you want to do a project with me? That's great. Here's what I optimize for. Love that. And I, I love found, that. Yeah. And I found that the people that I end up doing things with projects with whatever, like, I think a part of that is that it, there, there is that open honesty in kind of where priorities are. So anyway, that's a sidebar, but I found that life gets easier once, once you can, explain and be open with yourself. And in your book, that was one of the things that I thought was so incredible was how open you are through the process of what you went through and rehab and all of that. Are there lessons? So my wife had a brain tumor, almost died five years ago. It was the hardest thing that that we've ever gone through. And the way that I explain it to people is I wouldn't wish what we went through on my worst enemy, but I wouldn't want to give back the lessons either. Mm. And mm. because our family just grew together so much through the period, like our, we have the best relationship with our kids. I mean, it was hard for all of us, but they learned through that few years process that, you know, there are much bigger things and they have good head on their shoulders. They're wise for their age now at 13 and 15. And yeah. I assume, and what I got from your book was going through what you went through was a similar experience in some ways. Yeah. Are there lessons that you have learned through that that you wouldn't want to give back? Do you think that experience for you was a net positive on your life, even though it was so hard in the moment? Mm. Well, you know, if you go on the journey and you're able to address things along the way, and, <clears throat> you know, I mean, we have to, you know, I think when we're vulnerable, it, if we offer ourselves up and that we're actually just, we are human we, and you allow yourself to be human. There's a lot of times in my life where I, I didn't feel like I could let myself just be me, human. And so, and I had a kind of, it had a funny effect on me growing up in the seventies and eighties and, and, and sort of becoming a world champion and so on. It had a funny effect on, it came, it came quite destabilizing after a while. And I know that sounds might sound odd, but that's just the way I'm very sensitive. And we don't give recognition to. Well, it's funny how we don't give recognition to it, or we think, "Oh, we've got to be like this. We've got to be like that." But the fact is, once you reveal your humanness, it becomes attractive. It becomes very attractive because it's 
and it happens for us. And it's like, it's as if our worst, if our greatest success becomes our greatest failure and our greatest failure becomes our greatest success. It sort of moves in that way. And that happens at all levels, not just this. So it's, and that's a kind of like a, a natural force going on through us. So, but when we, like you said a moment ago, when you give recognition to it and you actually sort of allow it to be sort of shared, <clears throat> have this shared experience of life, we see each other for who we really are and that's okay. It's nothing, there's nothing to cover up here, nothing to hide. It's like once that starts to happen, well, all of a sudden you've got all this it goes into creation mode, like literally without us having to do anything. But the doing in the doing, you're actually just being. Does that make sense? Like just be who you are and then move, keep moving. That's the great lesson for me through this. And, And there's been a lot of gifts along the way in that area that I couldn't have, you know, enriched my relationships, both with myself and others. It's like, that's like priceless. You can't just, you can't, no, no amount of cash in the world can buy that. I don't care who you are. You can possibly buy it for a little bit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you might be able to buy it for a little bit, but you might find that'll be an illusion. For quite have a very strong illusory kind of quality to it. So, yeah, I think, like I said, I think I love the way Eckhart Tolle talks about that. It says, your greatest success turns to your greatest failure and your greatest failure turns out to be greatest success. And I think Joseph Campbell talks about that in, in the hero's story, you know, the hero's story when you kind of, you go set on a path in life. Okay. Well, I want to achieve this. And it turns out to be something completely different. It takes you on another big, but I want to achieve this through that. And then you go on another road and you go, and it just takes you on this giant journey around you come back to who you are. You know, and then like you mentioned, you have, you you enrich the, these moments enrich our experience with each other, which is beautiful, you know, and those who really mean, mean, you know, they're, for you too in tough times, they're there. Like they all things get revealed. <laughs> so beautiful. And we've been trying to cover it up. It's kind of funny. That one. That that's a that's an odd one. But and but it's happening all the time. It's not it's an ongoing thing. Yeah. And but I tell you what, the ocean's been incredibly always been there. <clears throat> and it's been a very powerful healing influence and offering incredible insight and growth and so on and but and also relationships so it's it sets it sets a scene for all that to to move yeah it's beautiful love that you mentioned money and buying happiness or buying those moments i have found this is something that i've been thinking about a little bit i think folks decide to trade time for money and then at some point try to trade money for time. And if you can skip that and just realize that it's just time that it, you know, I think that's like what I try to 
teach my kids is mm. that, you know, it's about the moments more yeah. than it is about the success, especially because I think success now is very cultivated ex- extrinsically, yeah. you know, culturally. Yeah. But so let's switch to foiling for a little bit. I love this yeah. conversation so far. Yeah. But what has foiling changed about the way you approach the ocean, if it has, I mean, someone with your surf experience, a lifetime in the water, you know, and through the sup journey too, and the ability to be able to let go. A lot of surfers cannot let go of this shortboard mentality and then try anything <laughs> new, which I think is very silly. And then to be early on foiling as well. How has that changed your approach to the ocean and what you're searching for? If it has, a- I think it's just, it's been very, it just broadened my experience with her. She comes in so many shapes and sizes and it's ever changing. And, and it's always interested me how the power of the ocean, never forget that first time I was stood on, I kind of caught a wave on a surfboard and stood up and had this power sensation of power underneath me that was driving me that I, it was just overwhelming. <laughs> you know, and I think, and just from that point where I had no idea what the hell was going on, but it was something amazing to still today that I kind of had this chance to sort of, sort of be able to tap into that. And she keeps presenting me with something a little different every time. I feel so fortunate and so, yeah, I got so, so lucky to be able to be born and sort of drop beside the ocean and and have this experience with it it's like and surfing coming into you know it never occurred to me back in the 80s you couldn't even surf my local break unless you're on a like a high performance shortboard you you something violent's going to happen like you're not gonna person's not even gonna last they're not even gonna get out (laughs) basically that is a few like you know enforcers out there that just like basically kicked them out or said what's going on with this guy get him out what the you know he's on a bodyboard you know or a longboard or you know it was insane like i used to go i the funny thing and the funniest thing was i just go back this one's the classic i completely annihilated my right knee when i was in 1977 trying to surf this crazy slabby kind of right-hander <clears throat> obliterated my knee just the doctors know what they're doing back then or at least the doctor that i saw the orthopedic surgeon but what i'd done was i'd torn all ACE, acl pcl mcl whole thing had just blown out and I didn't really know the doctor said oh just keep it wrapped sunny i'll get my nurse to measure you for crutches and you'll be okay in six weeks and just you know go away you know, that was, the, that, was the, that was because long-haired 16-year-old kids just, you know, they weren't rugby players, you know. And so I was like, get him out, you know. He's okay. We're not going to perform anything on him. Just take him away. And then, you know, like, four years later, multiple dislocations, and I had this knee that was needed full, you know, the full reconstruction on. And luckily I sort of ran into this great surgeon and he put me together and I was able to surf again without the knee falling apart. And I, I remember when I was overcoming, you know, surgery, which was quite violent back then, they had to, <laughs> there's none of this keyhole sort of clip the hamstring and tie it through and do a nice little 
job with a couple of, you know, the arthroscopic. It was just two big slices and they put you in this big cast, like on a 90-degree angle. <clears throat> so when they took the cast off, you couldn't move your leg. <laughs> it was horrendous six weeks later. But I remember just getting finally getting a fiberglass cast so I could use a what we call a goat boat. <laughs> <laughs> because I just wanted to surf so bad and it was summer, summertime. I got it done over a period where it wasn't being, wasn't going to affect the events that I was trying to, you know, do well in. So I had a few months to get myself together and during that period I got a ski. I don't know if you've seen those. You, you got like a paddle and a, it's like a ski, a surf ski. Have you seen yep. those before? Yeah, yeah. So... I ended up surfing my local break at a surf ski. And, that, <laughs> and they were just in shock. But I just, I don't know, it, it just brought me so much joy, you know, and it just allowed me to sort of get my head back because it's quite depressing, you know, as a crazy, crazy surfer and then you t- take surfing away from me, you know, <laughs> and then you just go down downhill <laughs> mentally. Yeah. pretty quick and but that pulled me together and i ended up causing havoc on that ski on the goat the goat boat and having a great time on it and there's other times when you know we my brother and i had a longer board that you know definitely wasn't accepted in the water <laughs> but my fa- our father who tried to learn how to surf because he looked at, he saw us having so much fun and he, he ended up going, oh, well, I can't do that after a couple of times trying. He didn't ask for any help or anything. He just sort of went off the side and did it and forgot about it. That's your board now, boys. <laughs> <laughs> and and up this, I ended up really enjoying riding that longboard and gave me a whole new perspective on riding a wave. And I think that's what the SUP and that's why it's so driven to kind of look at all different ways of surfing, you know, from body surfing to, you know, every way of riding a wave and feeling the wave and the energy. And I'm just, I always used to find it a bit, very, yeah, just too restrictive. And that's what I loved about Maui. The guys on Maui, Dave and the crew, and you can see it all expressed out of Maui now, that can real, like, diversity, you know, Kyle Lenny being mm-hmm. one of the greatest expressions of that today. And I think, yeah, following those guys and seeing what they're doing and finally getting over there and, you know, getting towed into some jaws. Those guys were Dave and Led and the crew who were really sort of pushing it. And then they went into foiling and Dave was going, you've got to try this thing. And I I looked at what he had. It was like this, it was like a couple of knives. I never forget looking at it. Going, what the f- what are you doing? And you got like snowboard boots on. I'm going, there's no way I'm going to tie myself in, <laughs> you know, like that. And then try and surf jaws. It was or just not breaking jaws, but this the lump, you know. And I, and uh, I didn't. And then Ross Clark Jones got a set of that, got a, a, a set up, and he, you don't want to be towed by Ross. I wouldn't advise it. <laughs> <laughs> on a, onto a big wave anyway, but not particularly uh, just even a small wave with a foil and a which is an alloy foil 
one of those air chair foil setups pretty much. And I remember getting whipped into a local beach break. It just wasn't a foil wave at all. And I'm just going, oh, man, I almost sort of tore my, tore my shoulders off. <laughs> so that was, all, I think, in, but I was always looking for just looking and anything that kind of sparked my imagination. And when Laird and Dave were doing the stand-up paddleboarding thing, and I just, I just thought, oh, what a great perspective, standing up and actually looking down across the wave and actually being able to see further out outside and accessing kind of all these different waves that you wouldn't normally surf but what a fantastic idea so yeah and it was a real challenge physically like and that's what i liked too being fully challenged yeah and none of these and then foiling really started becoming accessible once that um, you know stepped out of the boots mm -hmm. <laughs> i got really interested in it you know and came into a more sort of like accessible sort of setups. Let's talk about lines in waves mm. across the different sports. I mean, that's one of my, one of the things I think about a whole yeah. lot is, you know, different crafts draw different lines. Mm. And I have always tried to just draw the most efficient line for the craft. And that's mm. one of the things I love about foiling, especially in our surf mm. is that it allows what I think are like good, like point break, mid-length surf lines in a one-foot wave. But how do you think about that if you do? And what are you trying to optimize for on different surf vehicles? Well, yeah. Well, just to give you a little example, a little foiling, of course, we're more happy around the crest. And the crest is sort of the answer in a way. Until mm -hmm. where the source is and where if I jump off a foil to go surf, it's much more accessible if I get on a, a nice little fish. So I've got the glide and the ability to stay somewhat off the crest and come in and around the crest and get that glide. It's very hard to come back to a super high-performance surfboard where the line has to be drawn up in and out of that top, possibly third of the wave where the power source is and the vertical face, which we're rebounding to off the bottom of the wave as much as we possibly can. So the line, you know, depending on the wave source and how the wave's breaking, but if you've got a top-to-bottom barrel, which I just love, I love that sensation which I can't get foiling. <clears throat> and I'm not about to go and try and get barrel foiling, by the way. It's not my... You know, I'm watching these guys do it and so on, which is fine. I just go for it, boys. <laughs> Show us how it's done, like, for me. But it's, if I want to take a line foiling, I'm just um, – I like the idea of just, you know, linking the crests and taking some fall down the fall line, but it's not like a – yeah, I'm not going for vertical face stuff or standing in the barrel. And taking a line through that on a foil would be incredibly hard. And I'm not saying it's never going to be done, but it's going to be a while before I can imagine the design of a foil that would be specifically made for barrels and the way the water moves. But the it, line, you it know, feels to me, oh, so, so it feels to me like foils aren't optimized for getting barrels. And I, I always try to draw the lines that the 
craft wants to draw. And it feels to me like foils want to accelerate out of pockets. And so you're working against the what's beautiful about a foil in a way, not taking anything away from someone who's crazy enough to want to pull into a big barrel on a foil because I uh, have no desire to do that right now, but I don't think it's built for that. Yeah. You can see the tension created and I don't know. I get a sense when I look at the, the line, watching the boys in Tahiti take on Chopu and pull in and watching how they take, they get through that first part, but the whole design fails at a certain point coming to the end bowl and it gets too critical for the actual foil to deal with what's going on. It just wants to just launch you out of the wave. That's sort of, it's kind of like where it's heading at the moment, but who knows what's coming up. Right. But I'm going to be silly to try and say that's never going to happen. But, yeah, it's definitely the fo- foiling is, for me, is definitely on the face out on the face and taking lines out onto the crest and sort of drawing long arcing turns, which is a really beautiful feeling. Like you look at Adam Bennett's sort of the cutting edge Mm -hmm. of it, you know, Zane's right there, you know. And so really laying into some carving and people like Rio Stevens and so on, I've noticed he's got a really hard lean into his turn that's quite attractive to me and that sort of style of line on the foil and then even in surfing I sort of take there are sort of face turns that I like to you know come from the foil and go onto my surfing and then get into the line on the rail this time feeling rail turn so it's a different access to the surface of the wave you know it's less kind of hold this one lightly, less complicated on a surfboard than a foil having to deal with the curvature on a vertical face underneath the wave, mm-hmm. you know, the energy underneath the wave. But I see some amazing foiling where, you know, you see some of the foiling from the back of the wave when you watch, say, Adam and where he puts the foil in the in coming off the back of the wave in the face. Some of the footage that I see there is quite extraordinary. And there's also Nick Bennett's, who subfoils. Do you know Nick Bennett's? Nick Bennett. Is he how bound on Instagram? Subfoils? Yeah. Yeah. Next level. Like he's the way he sort of places the foil very critically, like in a very surf vertical face starts a lot of vertical face with the foil and puts it out the back of the wave things like that very complex kind of hydrodynamic kind of i don't know manipulation does that make sense yeah so but carving down the face of a wave you know it's really you know foiling that's where foiling and surfing sort of can kind of complement each other but it's just a way coming out of the turns different on the surfboard that's all turning back down the wave you know the way adam bennett's doing that you know he's really put a lot of time and effort into you know working on the equipment to design his way through to that stage because mm-hmm. i know that's it's a very tricky thing to do what he's doing at that speed yeah yeah and speed is something that doesn't really come across on video as well no no way. It definitely doesn't come across, huh? But yeah. yeah, when you're actually on the floorboard, you just Mac tanning. You know, he's 
he is flying, especially some of the approaches he's taken to the upper part, the top part of the wave and into sections. Yeah. It's super interesting watching what's going on there. And, that, you know, that's a big thing for me too is just being a part of something that's really on that full creation phase where everyone's just buzzing. Sort of reminds me of the time when the thruster came out in surfing and surfboards when Simon Annis had built the three fins and into a surfboard and then that sort of had such an appeal and a very broad appeal almost immediately. <clears throat> it created a real surge in sort of creation phase of how do we do this, how do we make it better, how do we actually do that and make it better again. And then performances just went through the roof and then they then we got fin systems because we had so many fins on the board. Then someone came up with a fin system that you could sort of detach. <laughs> Before we'd never had that, we'd travel around the world and be ready to fix a fin, you know, busted fins on the planes and so on. So, you know, the evolutionary phases uh, of what we're doing is so extraordinary. And to be in this area right now, it's, it's so cool to watch and be a part of. Really, I wouldn't miss it <laughs> for anything. It's yeah. it's the most exciting thing that I have mm. been a part of in like a sports mm. way. How do you see foiling over the next five to 10 years? I mean, if we look at stand-up had this momentous peak and then mm. kind of has died away to a large mm. degree, at least performance subsurfing. And do you think mm. that foiling has a similar arc or do you think that foiling has qualities that will make it a more permanent sport? I think what we'll see, just feel it at the moment, we'll just see the various disciplines of foiling kind of sort of start to be more prominent and take the lead in their ways and creation creations will happen through that. And really I, I think didn't and make, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but the surf foils really came from kite foiling. Is that right? I believe they did. I think that was the point. Yeah. So yeah, so it came from wind, and then that sort of gave us that. So it was sort of like surfing gave us skateboarding, and you know, all this sort of it kind of evolves this way. You, we may see that because we've got downwinding here. We could, you know, you look at how many bumps are in the ocean. <laughs> you think that's what foiling has done for me. I just. Gosh, there's a bump in the ocean. <laughs> there's one, there's one, there's one, there's one there. Now it's become not just a bunch of thin slivers of vertical face with a whole bunch of people sort of congregating in this one section on the beach or point or whatever it is, or strung out along the hole just to get that little bit of vertical face that's quite special in its own right and it has to be formed over a special sort of samba now it's open the whole ocean is open so and i just i'm I was flabbergasted i've gone i want to go for just for a foil surf trip like so around just my coastline just on new south wales you know just to do a foil trip i mean which i've done but not i've always had surfboards i've always had all this sort of stuff but just to go foiling and just find there's so many foil waves. And so we're not, I think we're just really at the beginning 
it's something quite special, I feel. And then with the advent of filing in, in you know, the America's Cup and so on, those yachts and all those areas are going to feed information, which they already are, mm-hmm. back into our application of FOIL. And so I think it's opening up. We just don't, we have, I just don't think we've seen anything yet, <laughs> really, to be honest. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I feel like we've just hit the tip of the iceberg of what's going to be possible. I don't know mm. how far design can go. Cause if you think about like mm. aero design, there's not a lot that's happened in the last 50 years for wing mm. sections and all of that. But I think application is okay. going to just, I mean, the whole downwind thing two years ago, I never saw coming and it's completely changed our coast. Yeah. And we don't know what's coming. That's right. the thing. Like, uh, like, and you mentioned uh, there might be like you know windsurfing came and sort of went a little bit, but it's some of it's back winds there. People like to do it in Hood River. There was a lot of windsurfing and kind of crazy windsurfers too, and they had that kind of there was a different feel with those guys. That kind of like oh, I guess those guys own the place because they've been here longer than anyone else or something. That's how it sensed. <laughs> I've heard that. From uh, and then you got the kiters that kind of sort of keep away because they've got so much sort of reach with that thing. And then you got these foilers that are just wing foilers that are like, get out of the way. Does <laughs> it? <Like, laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. That, so, but you have this sort of, yeah, this like lifespan of something that sort of tends to sort of catch your imagination for a bit and, how long that can happen, I'm not sure. But new things will come, guaranteed, because there's no way if you said, oh, Tom, like at first, I remember Mark, Mark Richards, you know, four-time world champion, and Mark was just like, oh, my God, I've got to do foiling. And I'm going, yeah, I want to do foiling too, Mark. It looks so good. Did you see what Kyle Lenny was doing? He was like <laughs> riding four ways in a row. I was just going, I want to do that. I just... Because, you know, you get to a point, you know, you're so enthusiastic about surfing in general. And I know Mark, Mark Richards very contained his enthusiasm, but it's just massive, you know. And he goes, I've got to try it, I've got to try it. Because he did some stand-up paddleboarding with me and he got into it and I was really impressed. And so, and he goes, oh, I'm going to do the foiling. And he tried and he just goes, I can't do it. He said, I can't do it. Like, I've gone, oh, that's yeah, I haven't. I hadn't actually tried it yet, so I was going, "Oh my god, if Mark can't do it, but what's going on?" You know, I've got to try this, and that's where I went and did my. <laughs> I had to do it. <laughs> I had to do it. I actually had to get a new knee put in. I got a prosthetic right knee, so so I had to. Yeah, you know, eventually I had to get that bugger old knee, you know, sorted out before I could actually fall because of the pressure coming up through the foil when I was trying to trying for my first time was just too much for my old cranky old knee to deal with. So once I had that replaced, I could really push it. And it's amazing. It's done really well. How does that equate the feeling of turning on a foil to turning on in bigger surf? I mean, you've surfed best waves in the world. Like what does a front side wrap feel like on a head high wave on foil versus you know what does that equate to in surfing for you um there is something about you know being on a bigger wave and you've got a really high performance long board 
mm-hmm. churning on a really clean face on a big way that has still got a really big appeal for me. The difference is that on the foil there's this sort of incredible sort of smooth, free, a little, and there's no, you know, if you're in a nice smooth bit of water and particularly, you know, I've been in some rough sort of turbulent water and it's been tricky, but if you're in a really nice smooth turn, you know, just the smoothness of the foil and the reach in the turns, the surprise reach that we have and the, the source of energy, so tapping into the source of energy is, it's hard to compare, but it's very smooth and just very lively. That's my, it's got this lively, it's tapping into the energy much more efficiently. That's what I'm sensing. But um, I do love getting, must admit, surfing big faces on of either a tow board or a, it's a bit more violent. I guess, as far as like hitting the surface of the water, mm-hmm. but on a long board too, longer board, say, you know, eight or nine foot long board or 10, 10 foot on a big big wave is, you know, just placing it down the face in the right way and turning off the rail. The longer rail is a lovely feeling too. So different things, but the sensation of doing a big arc on a foil for me, even on a small wave, you know what it's like, Eric. And I love some of the footage that you've been putting out and what you're doing there with the Unifoil crew. Oh, thanks. It's been really cool watching you doing that. I don't get to do, don't get to, you know, put, get much of my own stuff out there, but man, I don't get a shot really. But it's probably be good to sort of start to learn a little bit better with some footage because watching what, you know, watching your, your own footage really helps you advance quickly absolutely absolutely once you get over how humbling it is at the beginning so. yeah <laughs> yeah so we're coming up on our time window right now do you have a couple minutes for some questions that we got on instagram oh, i want to be respectful yeah. of your time sure all right all right so josh Koo, josh, what do you find yeah. harder surfing massive waves or downwinding oh josh josh is a yeah, he's stealth downwind. Wow. That's a hard question. They're so different. And I'm really just a novice. I'm, I'm still feel, even though I've got some downwind experience, I still feel like such a novice. So it's hard for me to compare. I feel much more comfortable, to be honest, surfing bigger waves. I also feel more comfortable pre- preparing for them because I'm not sure quite how to prepare for a big downwind. But downwind is ex- yeah, different. Like I said, um, Josh, Josh is, yeah, he's got it down. He looks very comfortable. Westwood, what's your most memorable session in the ocean? Oh, most memorable session in the ocean. Gosh, I've had a few. <laughs> if you could go back and read uh, what, what would it be? Okay, there's one where we pulled up as on our first trip to the Mentawai Islands on, in 1992. It was just with a bunch of friends. And we pulled up at this island called Engano, which is not the Mentor Islands, by the way, Engano Islands. And we pulled up and I was with Martin Potter and Ross Clark Jones and a few other buddies from I went to school with and so on. And, and we didn't take a 
camera per- didn't take any media or anything with us or anything. It was just a boys trip and it was organised by a mate I went to school with and he somehow met up this He's one of those people that actually pulled people together really well. And he somehow met this person that worked for oil companies up there in Indonesia and had a charter boat that used to do, well, was basically doing dive charters. And then he said, oh, I'll do a surf charter. Yeah, that's all like going with surfing when we go diving. And I know the Mentawai. And anyway, that was Martin Daly from the Indies Traders operation now. And he took us for a boat ride and we came up to a wave that we called, we eventually called laxatives on that trip. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it was one of the most memorable surfs because when we first paddled out, it looked like it was about like six feet from the boat. When there's nobody on the wave and you look at a wave from a boat and it's perfect, you can't tell the size. Like you literally got no one out there to sort of, you can't really tell. But we ended up, I ended up, you know, surfing this wave. It was an incredible left-hander, just beautiful evening, just perfect waves. <clears throat> Ross got two wave held, hold down and uh, threw, he had a helmet on. He threw his helmet. He's never going to wear a helmet again in his life. I know that. <laughs> and then, but that was, we ended up getting Martin, Martin Potter and I actually paddled in because the sets were getting up to around 18 feet. And it was just this amazing left hander. But never forget, that's just incredible surf. But that was laxatives because everyone came in. Everyone paddled out and a whole bunch of my buddies went in and <laughs> this Martin and Ross and I stayed out. I had the longest board at 7-Eleven. <laughs> A 7-Eleven. Why did I have a 7-Eleven? But anyway, <laughs> that's the only board that I could, yeah, that was the longest board I had. But that was a very, really memorable session, surfing, and a really good one. I love it. Vitor wants me just to tell you that he loves your weekly meditation practice. Rob Novo wants to know when you're going to get Slater on a foil. Have you already? Oh, well, I've checked during many times. And actually, he's, you know, um, Oh God, I can't believe it. I can't believe Miller. I can't believe it. Oh, Jason Miller. Jason, Jason Miller's his partner's brother. So, you know, he's got J- Jason and me just sort of hounding him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he'll, yeah, no, he, he, at some point, yeah, Kelly may jump on one, but it's definitely, you've got to go through that learning phase. There's no, no one gets, I don't care who you are. Kelly will have a sense for it very quickly, no doubt about it. But he'll apply himself like it's like he's applying. He applies himself to his golf or anything, playing music or yeah, anything. He'll have he'll have demand a certain level. Mm. Can't wait till he's foil brain and then we get him on the podcast yeah. in a few years. He's so cool. Yeah, his technical, his mind will just go to all these. You know, that's just what's happening at the moment. We're just still, what's going to be happening in two years is going to be extraordinary. But I can't, yeah, I just don't know. Imagine, and then Kelly's brain coming on it. I'd be fantastic. It'd be just brilliant. Yeah. Do you think there's a lot? One of the things that gives me hope for foiling is the amount of CT guys that travel with foils or you see clips of them downwinding 
towing where in standup, it was something that none of the top guys would touch. And, you know, John and Nathan doing downwind runs, Michelle Perez or Kiowa belly or Gabriel Medina, all these guys have shown some love of foiling some Mm. level and been willing to post it up. Do you think there's a lot of guys that are foiling that aren't saying it as much? No, I'd say I don't, you know, I think, I think there's so many barriers being broken down in that area. I think with foiling, you know, and I think that's how it's going to actually define itself further. Anyhow, I think it it is to surf at a really high level. If I was to, you know, I've got to be fairly obsessed about what I'm doing. And then if I started foil and put that same sort of obsession into foiling, I'd probably lose my, the cutting edge that I have with my surfing. So I'd be a bit wary, mm-hmm. especially if you're competing at a really high level. I'd be a bit wary about sort of shifting my body and the way the muscles work and the muscle memory. But because it is different foiling, it's a little bit different. You can, you've got to learn how to foil and then put your surfing on top of it. You can't sort of just surf the foil straight off. <laughs> A normal board. That's how you taco. I mean, you, if you're a really good surfer, you're going to taco straight away. It's like because of the, your natural feel to sort of adjust in a certain way. So straight off the bat. But that's why I kind of really get through to any surfer who's a good surfer, particularly, and they're about to sort of embark on foiling. It's please let me help you. <laughs> Don't just sort of jump out there. And, and that's... Yeah, so surfer, high-level surfing, I'd say, unless you're willing to step in and step out, step in, step out, and just play with it a bit. I mean, John and those guys, yeah, I think they would have experienced some sort of kind of adjustment. It's a big adjustment to come back and surf a really high level after foiling that straight off. You know, if you want to kind of swap it out. If you've been doing a lot of foiling, you come back to surfing, it's a very different feeling. Yeah. It always takes me like a week almost to get back to where yeah. I feel like I'm surfing. Okay. It's and in Florida, it's not really worth it. It's not really worth yeah. putting that time to do it. I, I can't, I, I can't, I, I, Florida would be perfect for flying. It's amazing. I can't. It's terrible it's, for surfing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like it's such a tricky wave to surf. I actually surf. I've got some photos surfing Jack's pier from when I was traveling through there and I think it was in 17 when I just had my, just coming back off my total knee replacement and I was running through there with um, Bob McKnight from Cooksilver and we were just visiting some stores along the way and surfing left off the pier, off the pier there, down the beach. Yep, pier ball. There's a fun little left. Yeah, it was fun. I actually had some fun waves. Uh, yeah. They just rebuilt the pier and it just opened, which is bombing us out because for the last two years, three, I mean, maybe more than that, but for the whole time we've been foiling, the pier's been closed. So you could shoot it. And now there's a thousand fishing lines on it. So now you have oh, to no. go around oh. the pier. So it's more like you have to take a downwind line instead mm. of just mm. shooting the pier was super fun, but. Nope. Yeah, I think I did. You sh- show some stuff doing that. Yeah, I've, right. I have a yeah, couple. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, up. yeah, I saw that. Yeah, it's awesome. All right, I'm going to leave you with this one, and this is from okay. Adam. 
Bennett's, and I love this question. Do you sometimes wish you had a bucket taped to your chin to catch all that froth? There's actually more than a few questions about how frothy you are, which I think, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it just, you know, just get me anywhere near the ocean. I'm definitely frothing. That's it. Maybe a bucket. That's not a bad idea. A bucket of froth. Attach it to the helmet. It's a germ. Yeah. Well, uh, this has been amazing. I really appreciate your time and coming on to share. I know it means a lot to everyone who gets to listen to this. And what would you like to leave everyone with? Well, yeah, like, I guess if, you know, if you're frothing hard enough, it's going to be exemplary, isn't it? Like, people are going to catch it. So let people catch it, you know? Let people get it and catch it and spread it. That's all I say. It's and yeah, ride a few together. You know, ride some waves together, foil together, and uh, and share the experience consistently. That's what I love about foiling, particularly, is that we all share the experience. It's not like me, my way. It's more, oh wow, we're all doing this together. And yeah, good sharing. I love it. Well, thank you, Tom. And yeah, uh, Eric. really appreciate it. Yeah, I love it, mate. Thank you very much. Thanks for your enthusiasm too. It's fantastic. I'm gonna yeah, I'm looking forward to many more great expeditions into what the hell's going on here. <laughs> <laughs> Project Podcast, deconstructing foiling, flow, and the learning process with your host, Eric Antonsen.